Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 234. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. This week, we bring you doubleheader special number 11, featuring two stories by writer Will Ludwigson, Nora's Thing, and Endless Encore. Will's fantasy and horror work has appeared in Weird Tales, Cemetery Dance, Alfred Hitchcock's Mystery Magazine, Strange Horizons, and Interfiction's 2 Anthology, among many other places, including Drabblecast. When he isn't writing fantasy and horror fiction, he writes fantasy and horror nonfiction as a trainer and technical writer for the federal government. These are stories Will calls postcard stories, stories which get their genesis from bizarre old public domain images or illustrations. If you listen to the enhanced file format of the Drabblecast, M4A, you'll see on your screen the images which served as catalysts for these stories. As usual, at the end, you'll hear a little bit from Will himself on each story as an author's note. Always delightful to hear from the horse's mouth. And joining me in the narration in the second story, you'll hear the lovely Renee Chambliss. Renee lives in Northern California, where she balances being a wife and mother with writing books and recording fiction, both her own and that of others. Learn more about her writing and voice work at rechambliss.com. So without further ado, we bring you Nora's Thing by Will Ludwigson. It had rolled and tumbled, whatever it was, gelatinous and tentacled, from lake to canal to stream. People watched it from the shore, following it with opera glasses and sea telescopes. Some thought it was a squid, others an octopus, others still just a glob of fatty flesh from some aquatic animal long ago torn apart and rotten. It was milky and translucent, with tiny red hooks lining the each of its sixteen flaccid arms. Deep blue bruises speckled the skin, wrinkling in like spots on a tomato. It had no visible eyes. According to the papers, it had drifted for weeks down from Lake Huron to Lake St. Clair, and now onward. Dozens of photographs had been taken from the advantageous spots on the riverbank, but the results were always blurred. Biology professors tried to snag it with nets. Fishermen gave chase with their boats. Somehow, the current always worked against them, and it sank just out of reach every time. No one could tell whether it was dead or merely placidly alive and content to drift. Sometimes it got stuck in bushes along the shore or caught in dock pilings, but a few good nudges with a pole usually got it going again. Someone in Algonac reported that it made a sort of whimpering, sputtering sigh when jabbed with an oar. It left behind a rich purple trail of something like oil. When the sun hit it right, the long slick refracted the light in all colors of the spectrum, and you could see it stretching back toward wherever the thing had come from. No one had wanted to touch it, at least until they noticed that whenever the trail swirled in an eddy beneath an old hanging tree or a shrub crackling away for fall, the tree or shrub burst alive again with vivid and unnatural colors. The leaves turned shades of greenish purple, and the branches took on the shimmer of silver. So Janie and all the neighborhood kids took her dying little sister Nora to the river. To watch it, of course, from a safe distance, as they told their parents. To stand in the shallows with their cuffs rolled up. Only that. Just to watch. 
Little Nora did not get out much in her condition, lungs always full of fluid and shivers always flexing her arms and legs. She'd rather have taken the opportunity, rare as it was, to crawl in the sand or play in the grass, but Janie held her shoulders tight, and they stood together in the chilly water. Paul and Ben ventured out the furthest. They'd been the ones Janie asked first, the ones who'd agreed to the plan. At first it was a stunt to them, but then they had to help carry Nora out of her red wagon for the journey to the river, and they'd had to catch her when she lolled to one side and then the other. She'd been too weak to hold herself up, almost as boneless as the thing in the water. They watched the river flow, the little waves surge over the sand and into the grass. They stared at the promontory fifty yards upstream, and it wasn't long before the floating thing lazily spun around and came toward them. Something made Janie sick to see it. It had gotten tangled in ropes and netting now, and a long plank bobbed alongside. Along its journey it had picked up the trash of the river, and Janie didn't think that it deserved that, to gather our trash. Watching it now, she had a sense of its strangeness, its otherness, and it didn't belong here rolling in a knot of human flotsam. Here it comes, said Ben, flexing his fingers and rocking on his feet. He did that on the pitcher's mound in the park. He wasn't good at standing still. Paul bent a little beside him, ready to pounce. Ready, he said. Janie stared while Nora squirmed beneath her grasp. Should they even be doing this? Was it dangerous? Were they dangerous to it? Ready, asked Paul again. Nora let out a tiny cough and a big shudder, and Janie knew. Ready, she said. Now! The children rushed into the water in a great cloud of spray. Francis stomped in huge strides, and Irene waded forward with the hem for dress in her hands. Ben and Paul were swimming now, just swimming for it, their arms flailing wildly and their feet kicking. The noise was incredible. They shrieked and the water roared and the people on the shore screamed for them not to do it. Paul had the longer arms, and he reached the thing first. He grabbed the plank and treaded water to spin the creature around, and it swept closer and closer to Janie and Nora. So near now, they could smell its rot, something between peat loam and copper. The strange, sharp tang of it seemed to pour down the backs of their throats. The creature hung limply in the water, just three feet from Janie and Nora, who was crying. They hadn't told her the plan, and now that they were close, it was obvious that they were going to make her touch it. But where? Janie hoisted her sister under her arms and thrust her toward the creature, trying not to cry. The odor was horrible now, and the slick of blood or poison or whatever it was had started to swirl around them. Nothing happened. Something had to happen. Janie wasn't going back to the shore until it did. So, eyes clenched from the spray, she lifted her sister into direct contact with it, letting her arms and legs squish into its bruised tomato skin like some terrifying hug. Nora screamed now, and Janie wished she could clench her ears shut, too. Four of the tentacles weakly coiled around Nora, and Janie knew she'd made a mistake. She yanked again at her sister, but the flesh only squeezed her tighter. Get her, shouted Janie, and the children tried to peel the fleshy arms from around Nora. They couldn't even get their fingers in, and they all gasped as the creature made a slow roll with Nora and held her beneath the water. No, cried Janie, pounding her fists on its exposed back, pounding and pounding. The others pounded too, and Ben flipped open his pocket knife. Good, she thought. 
Cut it open, please, get her out. Before Ben got the chance, though, the thing completed its rotation, exposing a choking Nora once more to the sun. Janie grabbed her sister roughly, and this time the creature let her go, its arms draining from her sides. A whimper, very faint, came from somewhere above the surface. With Nora in her arms, Janie kicked off from the creature and made for the shore, kicking frantically, screaming for help. The other children drifted back from the creature and let it go on, now with none of that slick substance trailing behind. It bobbed a little, shuddered, and now the sixteen arms flowed behind it like a woman's hair. That's how it drifted the rest of the way through the canals and streams, the limbs torn away by rocks, and the flesh nibbled away by fish, until it dissolved to nothing somewhere far away. Nora lived a long, long life after that. She never coughed again, certainly. She never shivered, either. Her body grew strong and her mind stronger still. She had strange dreams for the rest of that long life, though. Dreams of places and things that she later tried to paint and write about. She was famous for a time, lauded for her wild imagination. But she rarely talked about the source of her vision. When she did, she only said it was her responsibility to show us what she had been shown. She held strange jobs and voiced strange opinions and never let anything bother her, not anything small. And to her, it was all small and wondrous. Nora is missing now, escaped from an assisted living facility in this, her 110th year. There's a river nearby and a sea not far from that. And it isn't hard to imagine that she could gracefully dive in and go anywhere she wanted. Endless Encore by Will Ludwigson At least she still comes to see me, the little girl in the white and lavender dress. Some people would have left me behind to get help. Every day in what I assume is the late afternoon, when the sun is far enough to the horizon to cast the edge of the well in shadow, she comes. All I can really see of her at first is her silhouette, the eclipse of her small head and dangling curls against the light. From so far down, she looks even smaller than she probably is, though her voice can somehow always find its way to me. Hello. She says every time. Would you like a show? It doesn't do any good to say yes, or to say no, or to say, can you please go for help? I think my leg is broken. She doesn't seem to care much about how I fell down here, or why I haven't left. Whether I say yes or I say no, the puppets descend on their long strings. They're the old-fashioned wooden kind, with patches of cloth and hair pasted on their flat surfaces. One seems to be a man dressed in Edwardian style with a brown-gray woolen suit and hat, and the other seems to be a little girl dressed in a white and lavender dress with blonde curls. Both wear paper fairy wings on their backs. I know the story by heart now. Hello, little Elizabeth, says the man in the brown-gray suit. Hello, Duncan, says the girl in the lavender dress. Will you come walk with me, says the man. May I take my puppets, says the girl. Of course, he replies. Maybe we can make a show. 
The puppet's legs jerk and their arms swing, and the little joints squeak as they walk and walk. This part always strikes me as tedious for a puppet show, and I've wondered at the little girl's performing a literal time or distance. If she is, I have no idea how far or how long, because neither has much meaning here in the well. Will you come sit with me? Says the man. Where? Asks the girl. Over here, on my lap. Both pairs of legs draw up, and the puppets dangle a moment, maybe thinking, maybe admiring the willows together. To me, they're staring at wet stone walls furred over with moss. You're going to miss your sister, aren't you, Elizabeth? Asks the man. Very much, Duncan. Am I wrong to suspect that you're going to miss me, too? Even more, Duncan. We won't be far, you know. Down the road a few miles in our own home, a place you're always welcome, with all the woods you could want. But who will come to my puppet shows? Father hasn't the time, and Mother doesn't like them. Elizabeth, we'll build you your own theater at Barrow Grange, a grand one, with enough room for you and all your marionettes. The girl puppet hangs her arms and head, swinging quietly in the stale air above me. What about you? Won't you be playing with me anymore? Oh, Elizabeth. The puppet reaches for her and she tugs away. We can't stage plays for fairies in the well forever, you know. I wish we could. I'll miss those plays, truly. But when people get older, they stop climbing around dry wells and imagining fairy audiences at the bottom. Someday soon you'll understand. Understand what? The puppet in the brown suit shakes its head slowly. That people grow up. Me, your sister, even you. And grown-ups play in different ways. You won't want to play with puppets someday, just as Mary and I don't. I'm going to play forever. The girl puppet's arms came together as though they were folded. I want to do one more puppet show. Elizabeth, I want to. I shouldn't even be here. The preparations for the wedding. You be the prince and I'll be the princess. Then, in a slightly different voice accented with a stereotypical aristocracy, she says, Prince Duncan, Prince Duncan, whither are you going on the day of our wedding? The other puppet hangs there, doing nothing. Today was the day you swore to marry me says the girl's voice. Is that what this is about, Elizabeth? Something I said when I was a boy? Something to please your heart when you were sad? The puppet reached and this time rested his wooden hand on the other's shoulder. Oh, Elizabeth, you're still so young. Mary and I, we... The girl puppet whirls on its strings and reaches for him with her woodblock arms. Mary and you, Mary and you, Mary and you. The puppets tangle now, the limbs clopping together. Their strings twist and twine into one cord. They clatter on one wall and then the other before dropping into the mud beside me. The head of the man puppet seems bent back at a horrible angle, and the girl puppet rests hers on his chest. And they lived happily ever after among the fairies, the girl at the top of the well says. The end. Today's performance ends. Wait, I'll say, a little weaker each time. 
but she doesn't reply. She never replies. She only pulls away, leaving me for another night and another day with nothing for company but these rotten wooden block bones, plus two sets of human ones. and I wrote the two stories you've just heard, Nora's Thing and Endless Encore. They were part of a challenge to myself last year to write one story a week, setting a timer for one hour and using a public domain photo or illustration for inspiration. I posted the results on my website, www.will-ludwigson.com. It was an interesting experiment. I wanted to prove to myself first and foremost that I could write at any time in any place without any special preparation or inspiration or mood that I'd come to believe I needed. Writing is, after all, sitting down, shutting up, and getting words on the page. That worked very well. I learned that it is the action that creates the mood, not the other way around. I was also curious about how efficiently I could write a story that had a character, a conflict, and a resolution in it. I wasn't always happy with the results. About a third of the 45 stories I wrote this way are ones I'm proud of. But it was excellent practice for a way of thinking that writers require. How do I make this interesting and complete for readers? I was also amazed at the themes that seemed to emerge when I was under pressure and not thinking too deeply about it. The best stories were the ones that didn't follow the images too literally or didn't rely on jokes that I usually find easy. They seemed to come obliquely from some small detail of the picture, an expression, or someone off in the background. I was also surprised at just how many stories ended up being about strange women or girls. A girl picking flowers in the cemetery, a girl stuffing a bird with mechanical parts, a woman in a nightgown standing in a tree... These two stories are pretty good examples. Here, Nora grows up to be quite peculiar, and Elizabeth seems, well, to start out that way. Most of the stories tended to be either moments of great transcendence when someone rises above the mundane world, or moments of vengeance against that world. I have no idea why these themes struck me again and again with the images, but maybe they're just easier to write with built-in conflict and emotional impact. Or maybe there's some deep subconscious reason I choose the images to begin with. If so, the closest I come to a theory about it is that I might just be a little sexist, though not in the way you might expect. I enjoy writing about female characters because I think they have greater leeway than men, in our culture at least, to be perceptive and smart and emotionally attuned. In other words, perfect characters for someone like me who tends to write contemplative stories. They take action when they need to, but that's not all that's expected of them. Of course, I could be writing about men with these characteristics, challenging stereotypes and all, but they don't seem to get as many cool pictures. I hope you've enjoyed these two stories, and if uh, you're interested in finding more, please feel free to visit my website. Thank you very much. Well, that's cool. Not sure which is scarier, creepy little girls or the mysterious, webby, amorphous cephalopods that they insist on flipping over in river basins. If you enjoyed this week's show and you've got the inkling, consider donating to the Drabblecast. This is, of course, a listener-supported show. We rely on you out there to help us pay authors for their work. Hit up Drabblecast.org and find donation links there. We greatly appreciate it. All right, folks, Balticon this weekend. I gotta hit it. Closing things out this week, our weekly 100-character story winner by Travelin' Corpse Feet. 
Here it is. Day nine. I eat old peanuts and cracker jacks under the bleachers. I meant it when I said, I don't care if I never get back. One hundred character stories, twabbles we call them. Try your hand at it; it's fun. Follow us on Twitter at the Drabblecast. So that's our show, folks. Remember, Drabblecast is produced with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change or sell it. But feel free to share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes or wherever you pick up our show. Blog about us. Tell a friend. Spread the weird. So, our program is brought to you by myself, Nikki Drayden, Managing Editor, our Submissions Editor, Nathan Lee, Editor-at-Large, Matthew Bay, our Art Director, Bo Kyer, and with additional help from Tom Baker, David Carvin, David Steffen, Jake Webb, and Jonathan McNeil. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman, reminding you that it's all small and wondrous. The evening saunters to closing. The waitress turns chairs upside down Piano player picks up his tip jar and drink And the bartender shouts last round